From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. Well, I think nearly every society contains people who are the same in some ways and different in other ways. And the problem that all of those societies face is how to establish some measure of solidarity in the face of such considerable diversity. Welcome back to Season 10 of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. How do people or groups of people who share an identity, religious, racial, or ethnic, achieve their rights and live their identities? Over the years, national self-determination, guaranteed minority rights, and strong liberal universalism have been the three available routes. On today's episode of Takeoffs and Landings, Associate Dean of Intellectual Life, Charlton Copeland, interviews David Abraham about his paper, Group Rights and Individual Minority Rights in Immigrant Societies, Then and Now. Let's go to Charlton for the interview. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining this segment of the Miami Law Explainer, and particularly our takeoff and landing segment. I am delighted to be joined by my colleague and friend, uh, David Abraham, and uh, we've got a, a really great paper here. This is a, uh, a paper whose uh, length is, uh, is not representative of its uh, ambition, because there are a lot of big ideas the paper is, is titled Group Rights and Individual Minority Rights in Immigrant Societies Then and Now. It was published uh, in Immigrants and Minorities uh, Journal. Um, and, and David, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm really excited about this conversation. So I'm going to dive right in. You traverse a wide range of historical periods and uh, and different countries, uh, particularly liberal democracies. Um, I want to ask you, at this particular moment in their individual democratic experiences, what do you find as the biggest challenge as you've identified it in this project? Well, I think nearly... Every society contains people who are the same in some ways and different in other ways. And the problem that all of those societies face is how to establish some measure of solidarity in the face of such considerable diversity. And there have been in democratic societies in particular, but not only in democratic societies, uh, in this paper, I argue there have been three ways to try to accomplish that end. One is for groups to bail out. Uh, we see now, for example, that the Quebecois want to bail out of Canada. The Catalonians want to bail out of Spain. Uh, before 1919, there were lots of minorities, uh, that resided, uh, in Areas with um, hostile majorities, uh, many wanted to bail out. Uh, so n- national self-determination, bailing out, 
uh, is one measure, establishing a country of your own where you are the dominant people. That's one. The second uh, approach has been to formalize minority rights. So we have a soft version of that when we talk about multiculturalism. Uh, Quebec has achieved that within Canada, guaranteed language rights, religious rights. Uh, India has established uh, quotas for uh, different castes in society uh, when it comes to civil service and things like that. Uh, guaranteeing language rights. That was a big effort in the interwar years uh, to uh, provide schooling in minority languages. We saw some of that in the United States in the 1920s, 30s, and even 40s, uh, with emphasis particularly in the metropolitan areas where there had been a lot of immigration uh, on public schools in Yiddish and Chinese in Italian, in Spanish. Um, and the third, I'll come back to that because in many ways, that's the model that we're thinking most about today. Uh, and the third route uh, was strong universalist liberal pressures, uh, what we in the United States have come to call colorblindness. Um, that is to say, full equality with differences amongst people being their private business and not being part of the public arena. And uh, so certainly you can have Jewish organizations, Italian organizations, African-American organizations, but in the public realm, it's individualism and colorblindness. And it, partly in the United States, the sense that uh, A, that didn't go far enough and B, it's not good enough even when it does go far enough which has led us and me, I must say, to reconsider uh, these different alternatives. So I want to I want to ask specifically with respect to, to what you just said about the third option. That is to say that it um, it did not go far enough. And I want to I want to try to think about what in the paper I think you 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 are saying about the robustness of a public private distinction. Uh, that that there is a a realm that we share together, as you just said, and then a realm of thicker identities, perhaps even a realm in which private prejudices, if I may, and you can correct me if I've if I've misread that, um, might be a bit less challenged and confronted. What? In some respects, is the undoing of that is, um, and I and I I want to offer up what I took at least in part your response to be uh, in the paper. That is to say, in part, I understood your response to that question to be there was something about the inability of that universal space to continue to effectively redistribute material well-being that we were okay in that third realm, when there was a kind of ambition of a chicken in every pot? Well, I don't, I don't think you're wrong, but I would put it a bit differently. So when we had strong ethnic identities in the 1920s and 30s and early 40s, after the last massive waves of immigration to the United States, most of those immigrant communities 
were tied to trade unions, to socialist movements, which provided an integument that enabled people to be different and together at the same time. So if you look at the uh, photographs of strikes in the textiles and steels and elsewhere, you see signs in Yiddish and Polish and Spanish and Chinese. And those communities were recognized as caucuses, we can say, under an umbrella that they shared, namely trade unionism, socialist movement, etc. We don't have anything like that holding people together today. And that is a, that is something that makes uh, the connection between group identity and group solidarity more difficult. So what we've seen, and we've heard a lot of complaints about it, is that group identity has balkanized, has fragmented what had been a universalist liberal society. But of course, it turns out that that universalist liberal society was not effectively universalist for everyone. And that has led, it seems to me, to a reconsideration of the alternatives. I mean, there were always minor currents there. There were black folks in the United States who did want to go back to Africa. There were black folks in the United States who did want to carve out a country for black people in Mississippi, Alabama, etc. But the major push remained for a very long time, liberal universalist equality. So can I ask you a different question? Because I yeah. think that the paper is, is so rich on so many levels. You, the paper also seems to, to take a kind of institutional turn. That is, there is a, a vision of what the mass democracy looks like with, a, with the sort of give and take and sometimes pettiness, but um, in, in, in a Frankfurtian sense, right, the sense of Justice Felix, Felix Frankfurter, that we have a politics that is capable of learning and growing, um, that there's something about uh, legislative action that you seem to distinguish from a turn to the courts. Um, could you elaborate on that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that is a somewhat um, very difficult question at this point in American history and in other countries as well. Namely, can democracy function well enough so as to educate people? and provide at the same time massive legitimacy for what you and I might agree to be progressive goals. In other words, we see it in the abortion debate when nine people decide that abortion is constitutional. Uh, the war will never stop on the part of those who think that it's a horrible idea and no Congress ever approved this. And this was a totally undemocratic imposition uh, by uh, a small group of enlightened people. We see this battle in the educational system uh, today all the time between elite enlightenment and the sluggishness of the populace to, um, uh, to become progressive. Frank, Fra Frankfurter and the New Deal project was a bet on democracy, a bet on the notion that majorities could be built that would move toward a more progressive society, a more decent society, and that doing it that way would 
make the victories more enduring. The problem we see today is that it's very difficult to have that faith in majoritarian electoral democracy. And on the other hand, we also have lost faith in just how enlightened the enlightened elites on the Supreme Courts and constitutional courts of the world may be. Right. What do you say to to someone who might say, um, so David, we got, um, we, 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 we did have a, a legislatively enacted Voting Rights Act in 1965, uh, and we had uh, re-commitments uh, to that legislative enactment in subsequent years, uh, and we got about 50 years out of that before the court gutted it. Um, that is to say that the Voting Rights Act has met with the same fate as Roe v. Wade one started off as a as a significant, perhaps the most significant contemporary civil rights victory. The other, as you say, uh, had its, its roots in the courts, but they met the same fate. Well, I would certainly agree with you. And it is um, uh, it speaks well for democracy and even for legislative uh, versions of democracy that the great advances, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, uh, labor legislation in the 30s, uh, was all accomplished. All those things were accomplished by Democratic majorities with elite courts mostly standing in the way. We've seen those elite courts standing in the way again in the last decade or two. But Many of us, of course, grew up in the very exceptional period, so-called Warren Court, in the case of the United States, where the courts drove progress and enlightenment. And many of us came to rely on elite enlightenment rather than building a more enlightened democratic uh, base, more enlightened populace, a more enlightened citizenry. I'm going to, because we're we're, we're sort of nearing uh, our end point. But I want to be unfair and I'm going to be articulate. Uh, I'm going to state that I'm being unfair um, in advance um, for 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 years. You taught in the state of Florida. Uh, you remain connected and remain a valued member of the community of the University of Miami the Law School. Um, uh, something happened in this state yesterday um, and, and has been sort of happening in in in. The, this state legislature uh, that appears to be aimed at um, the the rights, as I call it, of, of, of transgender uh, persons, right, in in a way that I think um, uh, mirrors the the, the German uh, circumcision discussion, right? That 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 children might well be removed from homes. Um, what does this state of affairs? suggest about the narrative that you, you've laid out? Well, I'm not sure that this essay is capable of resolving the problem you or, just made. Or, or helping but us I understand it. But I will say this, that if you, if you don't give people serious and substantive benefits and serious and substantive reasons to believe in democracy and the well-being of the average person they will easily be deceived by shiny objects like transgender abominations and abortion and the kinds of things 
that we've seen substituted for real material policy. As, as always, David, whether it's in the hallways on the second floor of the University of Miami Law School or here, I am delighted to chat with you. Thanks so much for, for this really um, generative essay and, um, and what I hope has been a conversation that lives up to its, uh, its ambition. Thanks so much. My pleasure. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uges. Today's show was brought to you by Miami Law's Experiential Education Programs, central to Miami Law's mission to prepare students for modern legal practice. Students can apply theory from the classroom to real-world legal problems through diverse coursework. For more information, visit law.miami.edu.